The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's Bibles in your row. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one. We're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. It's towards the back of the Bible. If you don't know how to find that, or you can go in your app and you can find 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, just in case you didn't understand what Ben was saying, we're taking a break from our series in 1 Peter, our study in 1 Peter, for the next month, five weeks, basically, to celebrate Advent. We love Advent around here. All the worship will be um, Christ-centered, uh, Christmas hymns, um, and, and we're going to do an Advent series, and then we'll jump back into 1 Peter at the first of the year. Um, but for those of you who are just joining us, I'm going to get you caught up really quick we're studying this book of 1 Peter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter, uh, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, to Christians that were in Asia Minor, basically. And at the time of this writing, Christianity was a fairly new religion. Jesus had been crucified and was resurrected and seen by over 500 witnesses roughly 25 to 30 years prior to this letter being written. And his apostles had taken his gospel, his good news, as far as their feet could take them. And this good news was this. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you have done, Jesus offers you a new life. He offers you a new life, a new interior life, a new power in your soul. Jesus said this himself. Those who are well, they don't need a physician. But those who are sick. Jesus said, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus loves him some sinners, okay? And so one thing that happened as this gospel began to move out it went out from Jerusalem and into Judea and then into Samaria and then out to the rest of the world, is that Jesus, even though he was dead and resurrected and ascended at the right hand of God, Jesus still saved and changed sinners. Now, I want you to hear that this morning because Jesus' agenda is still the same. He's still doing the same thing right now, and he wants to continue doing those same things in our cities right now. Jesus did not come to make people more religious. He didn't come to seek and save the pretty good and make them a little bit better. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, the broken, the stuck in sin. And we're going to see that in our text today. But also, and maybe even more important, or maybe just as important, let's say that, Jesus saves sinners, but he also, here it is, remodels them. He renovates them. He makes them new and gives them a new internal power that changes the way they live. Hear me this morning. Jesus didn't come, live the perfect life, and die a substitutionary death just to forgive your sins and get you into heaven. Jesus wants to get the purifying power of heaven, the great remodeler of hearts, the Holy Spirit. He wants to get that into you to help you live a new life now. I want you to hear that. 
Becoming a Christian isn't just about going to heaven when I die, but becoming a Christian is heaven and heaven's power coming into me to help me live a new life right now in the flesh, in my daily life. A life that like demands a gospel explanation that people look at my life and they say, that's so weird, that's so different, that what empowers him to live that way? Why would he live that way? Why would they do those things? And we have to say, because God himself has saved me and changed me and filled me with a new power. And then... Also today, for those of us who are already a Christian and we're already kind of, we've been changed and we're being changed, Peter wants us to know that, he's give, that God has given us some weapons to use in our ongoing fight with sin and he wants us to know how to use them. So that's where we're going this morning. I think Peter has something for all of us. If you're not a Christian, right, I think Peter's got something for you. Those who are maybe newly Christian, but you haven't really changed much, you don't know that power that's in you, and those of us who are realizing just how difficult this new life in Christ is, and we honestly, we we just need help, right? Peter's going to speak to all three of those this morning. Now, in a lot of ways, as we've been studying this book, we've learned that this culture that it was written into is Greco-Roman culture, right? It has Greek Greece. It's influenced by Greece and it's in Greek thought, and it's and it's influenced by. Uh, Roman expansion, right? And so there's this Greco-Roman idea of what's going on in culture, what's good. And what we find is, the more we study this, is how similar our society is with the society at that time. In fact, as we look at our text today, I think it, it seems like American culture is actually progressively becoming more similar to ancient Greco-Roman society in a lot of ways. I want you to just look at verse three. Let's just go to verse three this morning. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, Gentiles, that's his kind of junk drawer term for just people who don't know Christ, okay? Right? Look, look. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, and lawless idolatry. Now, this could be describing a normal night on a college campus, right? Or maybe in the village of East Davenport or downtown, or could be maybe the, describing the contents of your Netflix queue. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, lawless idolatry. Peter uses this term kind of passions. He, he uses it twice here. He it says human passions. This is the third time He's using it. And the better translation might be our over-desires. Desires that are kind of unique to being human, but are often so strong, so over the top, so unquenchable that they're actually quite irrational when we're not under their influences. C.S. Lewis talks about this and some people that, that, that want to say specifically in evolutionary biology and some naturalists begin to say that your sexual instincts, your sexual desires are no different than any other desires. Your desires for food and your desires for you know, friendship and your desires for... And C.S. Lewis just kind of mocks this idea and he says, you know, it's just, that's completely irrational. Can you imagine... Um, let me just say, can you imagine this, this, this screen closing here and some provocative music comes on, right? I was thinking about doing it right there. <laughs> I was thinking about some, the beat drops, right? The lights come down. You, you hear the beat, right? You hear the bass line. The bass line's going. And then slowly, the curtain begins to open. Your heart starts beating a little faster. And then the curtain opens a little bit more, and then your heart gets a little more excited. And then on, but on, on it is when the curtains opens, there's just a table there with, with a, something with a little dish over it. And you open it up, and you just get a little peek of a hamburger. And everybody, like everybody's like, what? What? He's talking about our sexual, right? People line up, filling auditoriums for a 
we're a provocative show that's going to show flesh, right? But nobody's filling theaters to see a cheeseburger on stage, right? Now, now we, we are hungry. We have desires for food, but our desires for sex and our desires for sensuality do not compare to our desires for food, right? How, how, now, if anybody went, if you translated yourself into a culture, right, that had peep shows for burgers, right, you would be like, what is wrong with this society? Something has gone wrong with their desire for food, right? And C.S. Lewis uses this analogy like something has clearly gone wrong with our sexual desires the way they are. And we're going to get more into that as we study this this morning. See, our passions are sometimes almost inexplicable. We, we can't explain why we have these desires. and They're, they're almost, you know, we can't satisfy them. The more we give in to them, the more we desire them. As we read this today, we can say that Peter's kind of describing what we could say is a hedonistic lifestyle. Hedonism is a school of thought that argues that pleasure and happiness are the most important things in life. I think we have this in our society. We just say, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. And I meet many people as, as, as I teach the Bible and I've taught the Bible for the past 15, 20 years now who say, I can't believe this kind of stuff is in the Bible. I doubt you, went, you came to church this morning unless you read ahead and you were thinking you were going to hear things, you know, like we're reading in our text this morning, right? We've been kind of, in our culture today, we, we've just been convinced, I think, by our college professors, by TV talk show hosts, by television shows, to believe that the Bible is somehow priggish and prudish, that it doesn't have the resources to really deal with the realities of living life in the 21st century, and that's just not the case. Peter does not shy away from talking about sex, orgies, and getting wasted. He isn't shocked that people are doing that. And if you don't know what an orgy is, an orgy is literally where you sit down and you gorge yourself with food and you gorge yourself with drink and then you have sexual license to do whatever you want after that. It's a huge party. See, but it's, Peter is reading 2,000 years ago, he's talking about this and, and it, it, he doesn't seem shocked. The human passions of sinners don't cause him to kind of wring his hands and wonder what in the heck is going on. Now, look, look how he responds in verse 3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, blah, 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 blah. The time that has passed. What, what, what is that saying? What is he saying there? Peter's saying this to Christians. Hear me. He's saying, basically, listen, you did, enough of, you did enough of that in your past before you met Jesus. Like you, you used to live that way in your old life before you came to Christ, right? But you don't live that way anymore. Peter is almost kind of dismissive of this. Jesus came to save sinners and these Christians used to be some really good ones. He's just assuming, right, that they lived like everybody else in their culture. They were sleeping around. They were living for sexual pleasure outside of marriage. They were getting drunk at parties. They were eating too much. They were worshiping politics and sports at the Colosseum. That was all in a day's work for people who haven't been changed by Jesus. And Peter doesn't freak out. He doesn't lecture them. He says, come on, guys, you used to do that stuff, but now you're different. So point one, right? Point one, Jesus came to save sinners. Like none of us, that means none of us have done too much sinning for God to forgive, right? We have this mentality that we think somehow in the 21st century, we're better sinners or than, than, than people were 2,000 years ago, right? Or somehow our sexual de desires and our drives and our sinful thoughts and attitudes are somehow more powerful than they were 2,000 years ago. It's just not the case. Jesus came to save sinners and he's still doing it and he can save you if you want him to. None of us have done too much or sinned too much to not receive the grace of God and be changed. But point two, here, people who have been saved by Jesus 
live differently than everybody else in their culture. When Christians meet Jesus, their lives are meant to drastically change. And one of these changes means, look at verse four, we don't do some things that we used to do. So here's the, here's the reality. Let me, let, me, let me paint the picture for us, okay? Nearly everyone in Greco-Roman society slept around. They had temples where you would literally go and to worship the God, like Artemis, one of them, you would have sex with temple prostitutes. Okay, that's one way of worshiping. That's one way you know that man created a religion, right? They were just, their whole culture was kind of sexualized. It was all idol worship, right? They were, everyone got, everyone got wasted, right? It just sounds like most of our friends, one thing, one, if you're dealing with something difficult in your life, what do you do? You go to the bar and you get wasted, right? You're feeling down. What do you do? You, you go and you hook up with someone, right? It, it was the same in that culture day and age, but here's what happened. These people met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and now all of a sudden, inwardly, they changed, and all of a sudden, their desires began to change, and they stopped doing those things, they stopped going out and getting wasted. They stopped sleeping around. And you know what happened? Their friends, their neighbors, their bosses began to ridicule them. Look at verse four. Because they stopped with respect to this, they, that's everyone in their culture, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that they, and they malign you. See, now these Christians start getting made fun of. They're being mocked and maligned when they don't do the same things they used to do the things all their neighbors are still doing, things that their neighbors and more than likely most of our neighbors all think are good things. See, Christianity, when it came on the scene, it wasn't like, oh, wow, this is so good for our society. We see the, the benefits of, of living for Christ. It wasn't like that. They saw this and they rejected it. They didn't think it was good at all. Now, here are some common things that our neighbors are thinking. If those, those of our, our city that aren't in Christ, that haven't been changed by Jesus, here's some things that they're thinking. It's good to let off a little steam by watching a little pornography occasionally. Everyone should live together before they get married. You've got to see if you're sexually compatible before getting married tailgating and getting drunk before the football game, it's just all in good fun, no harm. If you don't eat enough at Thanksgiving to put yourself into a coma, you're doing it wrong. And these Christians stopped doing these things, these types of things, when they began to follow Jesus. Now, I realize I'm walking a tightrope and I'm treading on sacred ground here and I have to really be careful and I have to do some work because Christianity isn't like other world religions. There are many world religions that say bodily pleasures are bad. No, see, Christianity is not like that. When Jesus came in the flesh, he put God's seal and stamp of approval on our human bodies. Peter here and the Bible in general does not say stop having fun. The Bible does not say stop drinking alcohol. Jesus himself drank alcohol. Jesus himself at a wedding multiplied water, turned water into wine, a lot of it. So Jesus put his stamp of approval on human pleasure. The Bible does not say stop enjoying these things, stop enjoying creation, just you know, suck it up and live a, a chaste life that's just super boring and you have no pleasure only eat bread and water, right? Other religions do say that. They say bodily pleasure is bad. The spirit world is what's good. Christianity doesn't say that. God says, this is specific here. It doesn't say stop drinking. He says, stop getting drunk. 
He doesn't say stop eating. He says stop gorging yourself and eating too much. He doesn't say stop having sex. He says get married and only have sex with your spouse the rest of your life. So basically, the Bible puts some lines in the, sta- in the sand and says, enjoy this gift I've given you. Here is sex. Enjoy it, but here's the line. Don't cross the line. Here's alcohol. Enjoy it, but don't cross the line. Here's food. Enjoy it, but don't cross the line. Here's sports. Enjoy it, but don't cross the line. See, God has given us sex and sensuality, but he says, what's the line? Only inside the covenant of marriage. Now listen, anything over the line, when I cross the line, that thing begins to hurt me and it begins to dishonor God. Hear me. God draws a line in the sand. He says, cross it at your own peril. It begins to hurt you. It comes back on you. And then it also begins to dishonor his name. Now, I realize that by saying that, I make myself sound like a puritanical, judgmental prude to tell someone in our culture that any sexual act outside of marriage between a man and a woman is bad for you and dishonors God is one of the most unpopular and arrogant things you can say. I realize that. Now, why why do we believe that? Even though thousands thousands of years, people didn't believe that. People believed that sex inside of the marriage is where it's supposed to take place. It's the building up of the home and for the good of society. But now we think that what I said there was arrogant, judgmental. Why? Well, it's interesting Sometimes we don't even know why we have the thoughts that we have or the beliefs that we have. And philosophers and different people call these plausibility structures that we have in our mind. And, and, and just by growing up in America, by watching the shows that we watch, by being, going through public schools, by being just in our society, we've, came, we've come to believe two things foundationally, we don't even know we believe them. They're just down in our hearts, down in our minds that are foundational beliefs. And they're kind of like a grid, these foundational beliefs. And Christianity can't get through that grid because we believe these two things that are so contradictory to the Bible and the way God has, God has made us. And I'm gonna show you what these two things are. If I could put them up on the screen this morning. The first one could be called expressive authenticity, okay? Expressive authenticity means this. Our inner desires determine who we are and we should follow them no matter what to be true to ourself. So we should always follow our heart and trust our feelings or desires. So expressive authenticity. Listen, we hear this in our senses, be who you are. How do you feel down inside? Now listen, this is going to the extreme where if you, you, you're an anatomically male and you feel like a, a, a woman, what do we say? Oh, that's, your tr- that's who you really are. That's your true you, that inner desire, that inner feeling. Express it, be it. If you don't express it, you're not being true to who you really are, right? We get that in our society today, right? This is something, guys, that's so foundational to who we are as Americans that we don't even understand that we believe it. Okay, expressive authenticity. And it also says weird things like this. If you were to repress or suppress said desire, that would be unhealthy for you. That would be unhealthy to deny yourself. Right, we've come to believe these things. And the second one you might be a little more familiar with, and that's radical individualism. And that says this, no one has the right to tell another person how to live. We all are are like individual little islands. We create our own moral universe. I get to determine what's right or wrong for me. And and the mantra of this is just do what makes you happy. Okay? First off, I want you to see that this doesn't work. Okay? It, It just doesn't work and we get it doesn't work. One, expressive authenticity. Sometimes, ah, do I really want to get into this? 
we're selective in how we apply this. We clearly know that sometimes some people, never us, but some people have desires in their heart that we don't want them to express, right? Some people have desires, right, that are bad for us, bad for society. Some people have desires for children. Some people have desires to kill kittens. Some people have desires to shoot up buildings. And we, we, we want to say, no, repress those desires, suppress those desires. What's wrong with that person, right? So we don't live this out. It's a uni- we kind of universally believe it, but then we, we break our system and we go, well, what's wrong with that guy? Why does he do those things? He's bought into your system. There's people out there that are trying to teach that it's okay to do those things. Who says it's not? Right? Now, now listen, here's, here's where we get in an impasse. We, we, get, we have a problem here because we believe these things deep down in our guts and we don't even know we believe them. We believe these things that we should always follow our heart, always follow our desires. And the Bible says, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> and so we get to this impasse where either, this is, this is the, to put it really simple, either the Bible is wrong or my desires are wrong. Either the Bible is wrong or my desires are wrong. Now, I'm going to give you two reasons why I think our desires are wrong. Just rational reasons. One, our human passions, our human desires are contradictory. What happens when you deeply love the person you're married to and yet you find yourself strongly attracted to someone else? Do you you see the contradictory nature of your desires? It's interesting. I was reading a book this week and um, this guy was talking, I think he was a sociologist. He's talking about there's three phases to love, okay? If you've experienced love, you've probably experienced at least two, one, or, one or two of these. Um, three phases, one, infatuation, right? What do we call this? Falling in love, right? Getting head over heels in somebody. You have this infatuation phase. Now listen, here's the, here's the reality. The infatuation stage is the most intense phase. You can't stop thinking about the other person. You're cutting work. You're buying extra lattes and dropping them off. You're getting flowers. You're going on a date every week. You're texting. You're staying up till 2 a.m. talking on the phone. Back in the day, we used to fall asleep on the phone, right? That's the infatuation phase. Now listen, then there's the second phase of love, of a relational love, and that's, meant, that's called sexual unity, right? Um, this is where it's, it, you have this bonding of sexual intimacy where, where the Bible says this is where two people become one, right? So you have this infatuation stage and then you have this bonding, the sealing of a relationship and sexual intimacy. Now listen, here's the deal. Then the third phase of love, I'm just going to read it here. The third phase of love is where you get long-term security, peace, warmth of a long-term monogamous relationship. So there's this bright and hot aspect of falling in love, right? This first phase. And then that leads us typically to, 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 sexu- to having sex, right? And that's meant to bond us. And then there's this third phase, which is a long-term monogamous relationship. And st- all, almost every study shows that the happiest people in the world are in category three. They've been married for a long time. They've had one partner for a long, for a long time, and they're kind of settled in right? They've got this security there. They've got this warmth there. Now, here's the problem. So if we just measure this by these three phases of love, this one's the most intense, right? This one is where we get the most happiness. What happens? See, our human desires are contradictory. What happens when we're here and yet all of a sudden our secretary, we start getting turned on by our secretary, Right? We start having an attraction to our boss. We start having an attraction to our neighbor. See, our human desires are contradictory. To follow the more intense desire of 
of this one right here is actually going to destroy my long-term happiness. Do you see that? So to just to, to give in to my desires and just do what makes me happy, well, what does that mean, do what makes me happy? Because this will make me happy in the long term, but this will make me happy in the long term. This will make me happy in the short term. This will make me happy in the long term. So what do you mean, do what makes me happy? Do you see the problems there with just following our human desires? And honestly, as a pastor, I've seen this so many times and it, it breaks my heart. Because this, when you, to get to this section in your marriage, it's hard. It's difficult. It's boring. It's boring. You get to a place where you don't know if you can keep moving, keep going forward. I don't know, we're growing apart. I don't know, he's a different person, we're a different person. Yeah. That's what maturing does. And it's hard and the easy thing to do, look for that infatuation somewhere. It's the easy thing to do. And I've seen so many people blow up their life and ruin their long-term happiness because they go do what makes them feel good in the moment. Secondly, so first, our human passions are contradictory. So we shouldn't trust them. Secondly, our human passions are degenerative, degenerative. What I mean by that is that our human passions and specifically our sexual desires are such that when you begin to cross the line of what is biblically permissible, things begin to degrade. And eventually almost anything becomes permissible. Now we are, listen guys, we believe those two things. Put those two things back up on the screen so I can see them again. We believe these two things, right? Expressive authenticity. You are who you are in the, down inside, so you should just express your, express your sexuality in whatever ways you are down here. And we believe in radical individualism. individualism do what makes you happy. Nobody can tell you what to do. And then, and then all of a sudden, now listen, all of our movies are doing this. All of our movies are teaching us. This is the modus, modus operandi under all of it. And then all of a sudden, when people in Hollywood are uncovered that they actually live the way they've been teaching, we're shocked. Like the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Everyone knew it in Hollywood. And now we're shocked and we're saying that's wrong. Well, who says that's wrong? Now, we can say it's wrong. I say it's wrong because biblically it's wrong. But this is their model. They can't say it's wrong inside their own model, right? Kevin Spacey, right? All of this stuff that's, that's being uncovered, it shows that once you cross the line, your desires begin to degrade. And, and this is studies show this with pornography. Starts out just being a little bit and then you need more of it and more of it and then you need harder stuff more obscure stuff, stranger and stranger things to, to, to get the same feelings inside. And it's, your, it's when you give in to these desires, they become stronger and they begin to degrade. And then you get into things that you thought you would never get into. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to surrender to all our desires, obviously, leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of good health, good humor, and frankness. What's he saying? If you trust your feelings and you trust your desires and you give in to those desires and you just follow your heart, you just do what makes you happy, you are going to ruin your life, you're going to destroy your long-term happiness, and you're probably going to ruin the lives of people around you. When you have an affair, there's multiple people involved. There's multiple families often involved. That's just two, that's just two rational reasons, guys. I, I didn't even say this is what the Bible says there. It's just two rational reasons why you can't trust your human passions. And this is why, now I'll give you some Bible. This is why Peter in chapter two, verse 11 says this to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the over-desires of the flesh. He says this, which wage war 
against your soul. See, listen, guys, when God draws a line in the sand, these aren't just on some arbitrary naughty list. They damage our souls. When we cross the line, they become, they come back on us. They're like a boomerang. You throw them out and you think, oh, this is really good. This is a lot of fun. And they come back and they hurt you. They damage our souls. They sabotage our long-term happiness. So here's what happens. When God saves us, the Christian is meant to turn away from those things and begin to abstain from them, to say, okay, I'm not going over that line. But now I need to be clear. Christians don't just turn away from them because they're going, they, they could hurt us. It's not just a pragmatic reason. We also turn away from them because we have found something better. Becoming, I said it before, becoming a Christian is not just about avoiding hell and going to heaven. Now, first off, let me do, look at verse five. I just, heaven and hell are real. We, every person will live on after we leave this life and we'll stand before God and we'll be judged and we will go to heaven or hell. Look at verse five. But they will give account, those who just continue to live a life of sensuality, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is a judge. That is true. If you continue to live your life for your human passions and you refuse to repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior, you will be judged by God upon your death. But listen to me here. This is where I've been trying to get to. There's something much better than having your sins forgiven by God. Something much better. Peter told us that last week. We're going to return to it right now. I think this is probably the great promise of the gospel. This is the heart of the good news. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now here, this is the promise of the gospel. I want you to hear this. We're unrighteous, we're sinners. Peter's writing to people who used to practice all these other things. They're sin- they got a past, right? Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous. What that means is Jesus' perfect life is in your place. So when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross covers all your sins. But listen, getting forgiven is only a means to an end. Being forgiven is not the end all be all. Look what the end is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Look, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Listen, this is what we were made for. This is why our desires are never satisfied in this life. We were made to know and to be near and to be in intimate relationship with God. And once we realize that Jesus has done all the work necessary to bring us to God spiritually, God becomes our chief reward. He becomes our greatest desire. That I I desire to know God and to walk with God more than I desire to cross the line and to figure things out in my human desires, to check things out, to experiment, to feel good in the moment. I have a greater desire that trumps my human desires. Guys, this is a key to understanding what it means to be motivated like a Christian. A Christian does not just say, stop doing those things, those are naughty. That's what you grew up thinking, many of you, what Christianity was. Anything fun, don't do it. That's not the message of Christianity. Listen, the message of Christianity, John Piper calls it Christian hedonism. Your greatest pleasure is found in knowing God. Chase him, get to know him, follow him, draw near to him. That's where your joy is found. These human passions are drops in the proverbial bucket. God is your chief desire. 
He is the one we were made for. And so when a person puts their faith in Jesus, they no longer live for their human passions. Instead, as Peter tells us, they live for the will of God. My greatest desire now is to walk in his ways and to know him. The closer I can walk with him, the greater, the more intimate relationship, the more freedom I'm going to find. I'm going to understand his will for my life. And these human passions begin to be put to death. Now I'm going to ask you, because I know so many people who claim to be Christians, who say they've had their, you know, they put their faith in Christ, and yet they still live for their human passions. They're still getting hammered, right? Every wedding, they're getting plastered, Right? They're still sleeping around. They're still living with their boyfriend or living with their girlfriend. They haven't changed. I'm going to say that you're either not a Christian, you're either not a Christian, or you don't understand what God has done in you. When God saves you, he forgives your sin, but he, Jesus also brings us to God and our desires change. I desire to know God more than I desire to follow my flesh. the human passions of my life. Has this happened to you? Have you been changed? Are you changing? Have you met God? If not, listen, God answers this prayer. Ask him, God, I want to know you through Jesus Christ. I turn from this, this life of human passions, following my human passions. I turn that and I want to know you. I want to know the one that I was made for. Help me know you. And God can change you right now in this moment. When you do, get baptized in the couple weeks that's coming up. But here's the problem also. There's many of us in this room who we have been saved by God. We have changed. We're not doing all those things that we used to do. But the reality is my life is still dominated sometimes by my human passions. You know how mad it makes me as a preacher that my affections rest on 18-year-olds in tights? Last night at the football game, if you didn't pick that up. Right? I I had to clarify that. (laughs) These men running around in tights, right? Catching a stinking football and it puts me in a funk for a week? Really? That makes me so mad, right? What's going on there? What's going on there? Why when you're watching a show and something pops up and you know you, you know you should turn your head, it's so difficult. Unless your wife's sitting right there and then it's real easy, right? (laughs) Then it's real easy, Right? Something comes up on Instagram, something comes up on Facebook. Should I linger over it? Why, if I know God and I've met God, is it still such a struggle sometimes to deal with these human passions? Here's the problem. Peter tells us right here in our text. Right now, we live in our bodies in the flesh. And through this whole passage, you begin to see this juxtaposition that Peter's writing, talking about being in the flesh, as means having a physical human body, and yet being in the spirit. And that God himself, if you know, God himself is a spirit, and we're made in his image and made in his likeness, so we all have spirits, and yet we were given a body, and so we're this embodied soul. We're not just spirits who have a body. Okay, the only time we'll ever be disembodied is the brief time that we die and we'll go to heaven before Christ comes back. As soon as Christ comes back to consummate his kingdom, we'll have, new, we'll have new bodies. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he had a new physical body. He could eat fish, they could touch his sides. He looked a little different. It was, it was a little bit different, but he still had a physical body, right? So we live in the flesh here. And yet there's this, when we got saved, we got saved in the spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit comes into us and saves us. Jesus brought us to God in the Spirit. None of us have ever been in the presence of God in our flesh. We'd be consumed like this. 
Our souls have been united with Christ, and one day when we die or when Christ comes back, our bodies will be brought to God, and we will get to walk hand in hand, face to face with God one day. But right now, we live in the flesh. Our spirits have been saved. Our spirits have been changed, but we still have these physical physical flesh, flesh suits that have their own desires that are bent towards sin because of Adam's sin and we're born into sin. And so theologians say we live in what's called the already not yet of God's kingdom. Christ has come. Christ was resurrected. Christ was ascended. And yet he says, I sent the Holy Spirit to be your comforter, to help you. And I'll come again one day to make all things right. And so we live in between the times where God has made us alive in the spirit and yet we're still struggling in our sinful flesh. So what do we do now? What do we do now? We have been made new in the spirit and yet we're struggling in the flesh with our sensualities and our passions. Chapter four, verse one. Since... Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Since therefore, now listen, here's a little Bible trick for you. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it there for? Okay? Because what it's doing, since therefore, that's like a big arrow that's pointing behind it. Okay? Because of everything else I've already taught you, now live this way. Since therefore, what is it there for? Well, let's go. We already saw this, 3.18, right? Listen, Christ himself also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now here's the motif that we're gonna see. Jesus suffered, and look at verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here's the motif that Peter's laying out for us, okay? Since therefore, since Jesus suffered and yet was glorified and is at his right hand of of the Father. That's the kind of paradigm that Peter's laying out for us. Suffering before glory. Sanctification before glorification. Now, why is he laying that motif out for us? Keep reading. Chapter four. Since therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. John Calvin says of this passage, he says, we are really and effectually supplied with invincible weapons to subdue our human passions. Arm yourselves. What's Peter saying? Here's what you need to do, guys. Right? Here's what you need to do. Peter's giving us what we need to do. He's saying, arm yourselves. There's weapons for you to subdue your flesh. There's weapons for you to resist the pull of your human passions and to walk through suffering like Jesus walked through suffering. Well, what are those weapons? He follows it up. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is... He's saying there's thoughts that need to be had. There's a mindset of Christ that Christians need to have a mindset or an attitude of, that Christ had that's going to arm us to subdue our human passions. This is why we spend so much time thinking at Sacred City. I know we spend a lot of time thinking, right? And I, and, and I want our sermons to be full of content that make you think that we're not here just to have a little pep rally and get you motivated, right? Some happy, clappy music and feel good about yourself and then send you out of here. Peter says, arm yourself with this way of thinking, right? I want to uncover the ideas of our culture and go point at those things and go, those aren't biblical. That's wrong. That's going to lead to a broken way of living. I want to arm ourselves with a certain way of thinking. And this way of thinking, right? This way of thinking, what was, we just saw it. Suffering, before glory. Suffering before glory. That's the mindset that Jesus had. Many of us, we hear the promise of the gospel, we get new life, we get to know God, and we think, I'll do that, and then my life will be better. My life will be easier. Things will begin to click. 
I'm sure, you know, I'm going to give my life to Christ. And then somebody incredibly out of my league is going to fall in love with me. Right? Supermodel, astrophysicist. I'll never have to work. Right? You stay at home, dad. Right? We, we think once I come to Christ, and, and, and there's preachers that preach this garbage. It's garbage. The way of Christ is suffering before glory. And because we live in this already not yet, we get pieces of both. We're going to suffer. People are going to say, listen, guys, it's suffering to not go get drunk when everybody's going to get drunk. It's suffering in a sense. Now, this is, I know this is hard to say, but it's suffering to love one woman or one man for the rest of your life. You have to deny some of your impulses. You have to deny some of your desires. There's suffering there. And it's suffering to live a way where the society points at us and says, judgmental, bigot, backwoods, puritanical, no fun. There's suffering in there. But it's not just grin and grit your, you know, grit your teeth and, 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 and squeeze your knuckles and just bear it. There's joy to be had in there too. There's glory to be had in there too. We see moments of it when God saves somebody we've been praying for for a long time. When God does something big in our heart, when we get a glimpse of his glory and we're reminded of how good he is and how much better he is than all of our sinful passions. There's this overlap. If we go into life thinking that because we're Christians, things are now going to get easier for us, we're going to be unprepared and we're going to be let down. And so Peter says this, Christian, arm yourself with this way of thinking, suffering before glory. C.S. Lewis says this wonderfully. He says, everything we go through in this life all the difficulties, all the pain, all the suffering, it's going to have this miraculous effect that when we get to heaven, somehow the pains we experienced here are going to work backwards and make heaven even sweeter. It's kind of like if you had a really stressful week before going on a vacation and you get on vacation and vacation's even better because your week's been so stressful. We have to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Suffering before glory. And then lastly, for the Christian, verse one, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For who ha- whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that's in our bodies, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Listen. We, I hear it nearly every week. Why would God allow suffering in my life? Why would he allow this difficulty in my life? There is something about suffering in our flesh that is meant to cut the nerve center of our human passions, our over-desires, to enable us to live more fully in the spirit as we gain a greater and greater taste for God. Sin begins to lose its savor. And so Peter says, those who willingly embrace suffering for Christ's sake have ceased from sin. Now, does that mean they've stopped sinning altogether? Absolutely not. We know that. But listen, something happens in you. If you're a Christian who's saying, I'm going to arm myself with a way of thinking, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, I'm going to suffer before I experience the glory, there's a, there's a power that you get there to resist. And the more you resist, the more able, the more strong you become in resisting. It's just like working out, right? You start working out, nobody can bench 300 pounds right away. Very few people, I could say that, very few people. You can barely do 100 pounds. You can barely do 150 pounds. You keep working, you keep working, you keep resisting, and you build, the, you build up your resistance, your ability to lift heavier and heavier weights. The same thing is said of us. When we suffer in our flesh, we build up a resistance to our human passions. When we suffer for Jesus in the flesh, we build up our resistance. Now, have you made that switch? 
And when every, nearly everyone in our society believes those two things, your workplace, right? Some of you have, you're in industries where just Thursday night, Friday night, everybody goes out and they get wasted before they go home. Guys were telling me this week, his, whole, his boss brought everybody to the strip club. On me. Have you armed yourself with this way of thinking? Because when you say no, you're going to be labeled, right? Oh, he's one of those guys. Have you armed yourself with that way of thinking? Have you, are you willing to embrace suffering because of Christ? He suffered for us to bring us to God. I really, unless God does something special in our city and in our world and he brings another wave of revival, we have got to get used to being marginalized and pushed to the side and, and really just ridiculed. What do you mean you're, oh, you're too good to go to public school? That's not something, oh, oh you're, you, you gotta have a Christian. Oh, you're too good for that? Oh, okay, I see. Right? Oh, you know, you think you're better than everybody else? You're looking down. Is pushing to the edges. That's what they were feeling. Many of us are feeling that now. The more we grow and walk and closer, I think, and get closer to God, I think we're going to be feeling this pushing to the edges to become a minority of a minority of a minority. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Or have you embraced a false gospel that says, I'm really here? I make my life easier. It's not Christianity. It's Christ suffered for us. We arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. We embrace this suffering knowing that as I walk through this difficulty, as I walk through this suffering, God is doing something in me, cutting the nerve center of my human passions, changing me from the inside out, strengthening me from the inside out to live in a hostile culture in a way that honors him, and people, go, people can say, why do you do that? And I can point back to the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for me. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for your son. Though many of us have heard it a hundred times, the idea that Jesus would come as a poor, powerless baby and grow up in poverty, grow up being marginalized, never succumbing to the flesh, never giving in to the sinful human passions when he could have came as a king. He could have ate and drank and slept around, and yet he didn't. And he didn't do it for two reasons. One, because the will of God was more important to him, more glorious to him than his own human desires. And secondly, because of us. He loved us. He wanted to save us. He wanted to bring us, those who are broken and separated from God, wanted to bring us to God. Father, I pray this morning, my, my heart's broken for the lost in our city, those who don't know you. And I pray that we would even willingly embrace some suffering so that we could bring some people to God. Bring them to you and just point and say, this is what you're looking for. Sensuality, sexuality, drunkenness. It's not there. Your joy's not there. It's in you. It's in the Father. It's in God. Father, would you do that through us? Would you do that in this room this morning? Would you do that in our city beg you to do it. Start a revival here. Father, for those of us who have tasted you and we've seen that you are good, would you give a greater glimpse 
Give us a greater glimpse this morning so we can resist the pull of our human passions. We can live the will of God in our city, not for our own will. Of course, great. So we're so blessed this morning to not leave empty-handed. Those of us who have put our faith in Christ and we have been baptized, we're now offered your body and your blood through the bread and through the cup. The night that you were betrayed, you said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Eat it and drink it in remembrance of me. And so we come this morning and we want, you know, our spirit wants your spirit and we want to be fed spiritually. So would you feed us spiritually with your body and with your blood this morning? Would you do something supernatural in us as we eat in obedience? Father, we we pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.